Now this morning, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 3, which will serve for our main text. And as you do that, I'll mention that tonight, Lord willing, we will continue to work our way through key doctrines that we confess as a church, and in particular, we'll be looking at the sufficiency of Scripture, what we confess in light of Belgian Confession Article 7, basically, in what ways is the Bible enough for us? So I strongly encourage you, especially if you have children, to make a point to gather together for worship in the evening as we consider to think through those doctrines of the Scripture. This morning, we're continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark, and our main reading begins at verse 13. So let's give attention to the word of the Lord. And he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the names Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's seek the Lord's special blessing. Let's ask for the Holy Spirit to work in us as we consider his word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we gather here according to your command, that you meet with us by your sovereign spirit and you perform that work which is good. We ask that in mercy you would please soften our hearts, make us more willing to serve you freely. Please, Lord, drive out unbelief, encourage us with your mercy. We ask that if there are any who are hardened to your word, to the gospel, that you would please, through your word, Break them and open them and give them the joy that overflows in the knowledge of Christ. We ask these things for your glory and for our benefit. In Jesus' name, all God's people pray. Amen. This passage has an incredible word in light of the context, the word desire, and it says that Christ desired these men. As I look out, and I know most of you somewhat or even fairly well, I'm confident that you have had a question which I have had many, many times. And the question is, why, Lord, would you desire me? Why would you desire not just to forgive me, but desire to even use me for your kingdom? Why would you want to spend eternity with me and to give me a position and a role within all that you're doing? That is the work of the Holy Spirit who humbles us and astounds us at his willingness to use sinners. And we can rejoice if you have that in your heart at all. On the other hand, it's entirely possible, maybe even likely in a group of this size, that you have a different thought this morning. Your thought as you hear these words is something, even if you don't say it with words, maybe it's in your heart, it's something to the effect of, why wouldn't God desire to use me or anyone? If God is good, shouldn't God want to use everyone in the way that they want to be used? The Bible declares that not only is God perfectly 
wise and perfectly righteous, but he is absolutely sovereign. That means he has complete and total freedom to make use of, to employ his creatures as he wills. He does not have to consult with us on our preferences. He is wise and righteous and free. Isaiah, or Psalm 135, verse 6, says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. Absolute freedom. Romans chapter 9 calls back to Isaiah 45, and it asks the question, Has not the potter power over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In fact, Isaiah goes further. The Lord says, Does the pot have any right to say, Why didn't you put handles on me? It's picturesque. I thought I was going to be used for one form of service, but you want to use me for this form. The Lord is sovereign. He is not just a projection of a human being in the sky. He is a being beyond all comprehension. He has freedom, if he wills, to make of some matter a worm that crawls through the mud its entire life and then dies. He is free to make angels that soar in glory, who spend night and day thinking of the divine character and work, who will live for eternity. And somewhere in between, he has seen fit to make you and I, to make human beings, in order that we might know him and we might serve him. But have you actually done that well? I am certain that I will be with those servants who are described in the Bible who will say to the Lord on Judgment Day, when did we ever serve you, Lord? If you actually look into our heart, when did we do anything very well for you? Our best efforts are clouded with all kinds of sin. You don't deserve, I cannot demand that God would use me for his service. One of the marvels that we encounter in Mark's gospel, one of the marvels of Mark chapter 3, is that here we see the Lord now incarnate among us, come in the flesh, God walking with sinners, desires to use them. He desires to serve alongside of them. He desires to empower and to appoint them for his work. And as we consider the desires of Jesus Christ towards these 12 disciples, this has a way of opening up to you something of the character of the Lord, but also it should shape how you think about yourself and your calling and how we relate to others in the church and our expectations for them. So as we consider these things together, we're going to do so under three main divisions, and I'll announce each of those as we come to them. Three divisions, and each of them will explore different aspects of Jesus' desires towards these disciples. Look with me at verse 13. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. Why did he desire them? In the first place, I believe that there are what we could describe as general reasons for his desiring the 12 disciples. General reasons. This is our first main division. When I say general reasons, I mean there are aspects to his desire that don't have anything to do directly with those particular people that he called. Had he willed to call other men, he would still have these desires that we touch on. And these general desires include theological reasons and practical reasons. What do I mean by theological reasons for calling 12? Most commentators perceive something significant, something theological, 
in the fact that Jesus calls 12 disciples and not, say, 35 or 67 or 4. Most commentators perceive here a parallel, a kind of equivalence between the way that long ago, God first calls out his people from Egypt, and he gathers the 12 tribes at Sinai, and he gives them what we call the old covenant administration of his will. And now we find Jesus, God incarnate, coming to a different mountain, going up the mountain, and he calls 12 disciples. And most commentators perceive here that Jesus is now reconstituting or signaling that he is reforming his covenant people under a new basis, under the new covenant, and upon the foundation of these apostles whom he is going to charge to form the structure and to provide much of the teaching of the early church. And so there are theological reasons for calling 12 disciples. There are also practical reasons too. Look with me at verse 14. It says his purpose was, quote, so that they might be with him, by which I understand to receive intensive training. They're going to be with him night and day. They're going to watch what Jesus does. They're going to hear what he says all the time. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, someone had to spend time studying what Jesus was saying. Someone had to go proclaim these things. And someone needed to give Holy Spirit-attested demonstrations of the power of the age to come. But not everyone. Could you imagine if every single farmer and every single butcher and every single mother got up from everything they were doing and just followed Jesus everywhere for the next several years? Life and society would not function. Even so, at every period in history, God has set aside certain persons to fulfill special functions towards his covenant people. And today we have pastors, we have elders, we have evangelists, we have deacons, we have different persons who occupy particular roles. God calls people, men and women, to all kinds of different roles. And to what is that decision left? Now we know that James says, let there not be many teachers. And it's not God's will that there should be 99 pastors and one person sitting in the pew, right? So how do you decide who fills different roles? Could you imagine if something else had happened in this text? Imagine for a moment, Jesus goes up onto the mountain. He's up there with all these people and he says, come on up, and a huge crowd comes up. And then he says, by show of hands, by show of hands, who desires to be an apostle? And all these people put their hands up, people that we never have heard the names of. You've got Herman, you've got Isaac, and Jesus says, all right, you're going to be the apostles. He does not leave it simply to what we would describe as the internal sense of calling from God. In fact, our text in verse 13 emphasizes Christ's supremacy in ordering his church. Look at verse 13. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. And so we see that this role that they're being granted is not determined solely by an internal sense of, well, I'd like to do it. But it's confirmed by Christ's calling. 
Now, depending how familiar you are with the scriptures, you may not be aware, but you should know, that is true today as well. We seek to identify in those who would serve in different ways a sense of internal call, the desire to serve. We shouldn't compel people who have no desire to serve. On the other hand, Christ is ruling his church, and in order to serve, especially in special forms of office, the church is Christ's means. Christ, through the church, confirms the internal call by an external call and appointment. That's what we find in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 6, the first people who are called to be deacons, the apostles say, choose from among all of you in the congregation who should serve as deacons, and then they basically elect these people. When you go later on in Acts with Paul and Barnabas, this is Paul. You, you would think maybe that Paul could just go out and say, I'm going to be an apostle, nobody has to confirm me. Paul and Barnabas in Antioch are set aside by the Holy Spirit through the church, and the church then lays hands on them to acknowledge publicly, we believe they have the gifts and the calling. Here, even in the general sense of Christ's desires being revealed here, Christ holds authority to order his church. I exhort you, my brothers and sisters, beware, either in yourself or in others, any spirit of imposing imposing our desire upon the church. Just because somebody feels so deeply that they are supposed to be a spokesperson for the Lord, that does not mean they have that calling. And in fact, if they are willing to push that and go from church to church to church until somebody just lets them in and doesn't look at the actual qualifications for being in those roles, beware that person. And beware that spirit in your heart that doesn't submit to the process that Christ himself ordered. You don't have to go far to find that in the world around us, and it has always been the case. But here we have seen at this point some of the general desire that Christ has for these 12 disciples. But what about the 12 in particular? Because he did choose particular people, and the text names all of them. In fact, some of them we don't know any more than just these names. And yet it shows us they had an identity. The Lord made a specific selection. He knew them all. Why does he choose these 12 men in particular? And that brings us to our second division. As you consider, why does God choose particular believers to serve him in particular ways? And that's something that I imagine at different times you've wondered about yourself, whether you're wondering why you're called to serve as you are or whether he would call you to serve. It is true. We know very, very little about the disciples at this stage in their life and development. And I wonder if you could even name many facts about them. And I can't name too many facts. The scripture doesn't tell us much about the disciples at this point. However, most of what it does tell us about the disciples at this stage would probably not recommend them in the minds of normal people to be students for becoming spokespersons of the gospel. When you actually get to know them, are these the people that we would think, yeah, this, if you're going to build a kingdom, this is where you want to start. Peter is incredibly impulsive with his mouth, and he's going to be one of the speakers for the gospel? He's incredibly impulsive. And then you have James and John, who are the sons of thunder, who express in the gospels at various times a bracing lack of compassion towards people that they interact with, willing to call down fire on a city, and Jesus basically says, cool it. 
You have to think through what I want. Maybe there's judgment in the future for them, but you haven't consulted God's will on that. And Don't you realize you're a sinner too? These are people that Christ draws to himself in order to train them. And few, if any of them, had the kind of schooling and the experience that you would think would suit them to the future role of a pastor over the church, of an apostle in the kingdom. Now, I do want to be clear. At this point, Jesus is not appointing them as shepherds and pastors over the church. They are entering a trial period, a period of training. So they're not responsible to administer the keys of the kingdom and the sense of discipline over people. But they are being given responsibility that's very weighty. And they're being tested. What does this then say concerning yourself? Connect this to yourself for a moment. You should not presume that God is not desiring to use you for his service. Nothing about your past sins or your present struggles should then say to you, God wouldn't want to use me. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't qualifications for particular kinds of usefulness. But starting from where you are right now, the Lord does want to use you. He says, go into all nations, make disciples of all people, teaching them to obey whatsoever I've commanded. And every disciple is called to serve. So you have a calling from Christ. Whatever the specificity of your calling is, set that aside. Christ desires to use you for his kingdom. His grace overflows to all kinds of sinners with all kinds of struggles. And you might look at yourself and say, well, I don't expect him to use me in any significant way because I'm not particularly gifted. Were they particularly gifted? I don't think others would have looked at them and thought that. But the same spirit who sovereignly sets people aside also gifts those people in his time for what he calls them to. And to those whom are faithful with a small amount, he often pours out more later on. And so instead of waiting for some sense of, oh, now's the time I'm called in order to serve him, when you have all the great gifts, be faithful with what you have right now. Do what you can for the people around you. Do all the good you can with whatever, as you may see it, meager gifts you have. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11 says, concerning the Holy Spirit and all of the spiritual gifts, all the gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So maybe you're not so gifted now, but it may be in the future. That also applies to others in the way that we look at them. And I want you to think for a moment about what Christ's desire towards these disciples has to say about the way that we relate to potential servants in the church not exclusively in terms of the offices, all service in general, but also in terms of the offices, and I want to speak especially to those who are in positions of leadership here. My observation is that often, when we are seeking people to occupy different roles of responsibility in the church, often what we do is we look for finished products or we pray to God to bring us people who are already practically finished products. Instead of doing what Christ does here, and what we find is he takes people who are willing, and he forms and he molds them and he tests them. 
These are people who came to him. And he takes them and he develops them. And we try to skirt discipleship. And it's going to take years for these disciples to receive his teaching. And even then, there's so much growth that has to happen. I would urge us as a church not to pass by, to pass over those who seem ungifted. I'm not saying lower the biblical standards for actually holding an office. I'm saying that we, instead of focusing on those who have the gifts, should look for the graces first. Does someone exhibit willingness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness? They're exhibiting the Spirit. And now let's pour into them and see what gifts the Lord will pour out as we disciple them. And that means typically starting years in advance. If we hope that somebody's going to serve as an elder in their 40s or 50s or 60s, we need to start that process in their 20s and their 30s, if not younger in certain respects. And the same goes for every aspect of ministerial life. The church must in that way be gripped by a sense of the same grace that you receive has to be extended to others. People may walk through our doors that when we meet them, we might think, I can't even imagine them being in any kind of role in the future. Excellent! The Lord delights to show his power by taking what is weak and working through it. Let's not write anyone off. Let's work and develop people. Now, we do find in this text that just before Jesus chooses these men. If you compare it with Luke's gospel, there's a detail that Luke includes that Jesus spent a protracted time in prayer. And that is especially an example for us that in the selection of people, we are looking for God's blessing and guidance. But it does raise a question. Even with all that prayer, Jesus chooses one of these disciples who does not desire him. And that's Judas. In fact, John chapter 6, verse 70 tells us explicitly, Jesus knew that Judas was a devil at heart. Jesus was God. He didn't need anybody to tell him what was going on in the heart of people. He knew what Judas was, and yet he chooses Judas to serve. And this brings us to our third and final division. Why would Jesus desire a Judas? And what does that mean for our way of living in the church today? I think that there are many different reasons that could be drawn out, and I don't intend to draw them all out this morning. But I'd like to focus your attention upon two reasons why Christ would desire Judas to serve among his true disciples. Because you will experience, directly or indirectly, the very things that we find here. First, in choosing Judas to serve as one of the twelve disciples, God is making a point about salvation point about salvation. And I want to speak especially to some of the younger ones here and to some of the oldest. No amount of hearing good sermons, of being in the presence of Christ's ministry, no amount of serving Christ outwardly guarantees that a person will be saved. Because those are not the things that save us. The Lord is not looking for a certain amount that, you know, you put a lot in. You made your investment. I see you're very committed. No amount of that. Judas was there for everything, but his heart was never changed. And Jesus says in John chapter 3, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom. It doesn't make sense to you. 
You don't desire to be a part of it, and you will not be a part of it in the future. The new birth, by its very analogy, is not something you do in yourself. It's a miracle of grace that God works, and yet he does honor his means, and he honors his promises, and every person who humbles himself and says, Lord, I desire you to save me on your terms. I'm going to take up your promise to be gracious. They will receive God's blessings. But if you will not humble yourself, and if you continue to walk manifesting that you are gripped by the flesh and you have not yet come to walk in the Spirit. As Judas, the entire time we read in the Gospel, was stealing. Even as he's criticizing others for spending money lavishly, he's saying, that could have been used for the poor, but he's stealing the whole time. There are those who find their way into positions of leadership, and yet their hearts haven't been changed. I don't say that with reference to suspicions of anyone in this church. And yet it is a caution from the scripture that every person, no matter how outwardly associated they are, has to take stock. Second, I believe that in the calling of Judas, Christ desired something for you and for me, for the whole church throughout the ages. He desired to fortify us against the very difficult time that would be ahead of us. And what am I referring to here? Think how shocked the disciples were when they learned that one of their own, one of the twelve, had betrayed Jesus unto death. I can say those words, but unless you've experienced incredible betrayal in person, that there was someone you absolutely had confidence in, they have integrity, and then they do the opposite, it may be hard for you to relate to emotionally and spiritually what they felt. Judas was the person that they did not expect when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. They are pointing the fingers at themselves rather than Judas. They think, no, Judas is totally sound. He's he's godly. And then he not only falls, but he tries to take Jesus down forever. What a shock. And if you've been around at all, and I, I hurt for some of you children, that you will pass through at some point this experience that most older people have gone through. But here it is to brace us, to prepare us, and to fortify us. At some point, there's going to be some person that you hear about or in a church who lets you down. Have you not been shaken by that? Someone, maybe a pastor or a leader, a teacher, an elder, maybe a great godly woman that you were great friends with who discipled you. This person you thought was so solid, and then it comes to light, they were an absolute hypocrite. Maybe not just living in sin, but they even turn away entirely from the faith. And are you going to be offended and say, why would God even allow that? I'll bet they're all just in it for themselves. From the very beginning, we see that Christ would permit a Judas to be among his people. Now, why would he do that? He has his purposes, and his purposes are good, even if they are hard to make sense of at times. Think about redemption by way of a picture. Think about the most beautiful tapestry that there ever was. And this is a tapestry that represents to us our redemption and salvation. There is going to be a section of that tapestry that shows us the age to come and of what glories But necessarily, there is a portion of that tapestry that pictures to us 
the suffering and the atoning death of Jesus Christ. It was needed. In God's purpose, it was necessary that someone should bear our sins. And Christ went voluntarily. He does say, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. But there were means involved in that happening, in his coming to the cross and dying. And if you were to go up to that tapestry and look more closely at the death of Christ in red and black, what you would see is that God with skill has woven into time the responsible choices of a person like Judas. He can take one man's greed and hypocrisy and murderous hate, and he can make that useful to bringing about your salvation. There is a sense in which we might say, no no Judas, there is no salvation in Jesus. God could have used somebody else, but God's wisdom in this case was to use Judas. Judas is still responsible and accountable, so he doesn't get a pass for his sin. Even so, down to the very present, those who make their way like wolves and creep into the church, as we were warned would happen, will be accountable for their sin. And yet you should not fear that God is not able to bring good through that. Let me give you one brief example. Many years ago, I was attending a church, and there was an elder whom I think we all thought of as an excellent elder, very knowledgeable gave really excellent answers to people on all sorts of subjects. A generous giver, very talented in lots of ways, gave good counsel in our officer meetings. In a lot of ways, he seemed like a model elder. And then he was sick. We understood that he was sick for a period of weeks, and he wasn't at church, and then it was a period of months. And we started to wonder, what's going on? We hadn't seen him. And then one day he sent an email to the entire congregation, never was. And his email just told us that he had turned away from the faith, he no longer believed any of it, please don't contact him. It was such a blow to everyone. What was God doing in that? And it leaves you wondering, can I I be confident of anyone? And that sort of thing. On the one hand, recognize The good that man did, God really did work through him. The money he contributed was helpful. The answers that he gave were sound. He was used of God, even in spite of himself. And the Lord can glorify himself by using such a person. On the other hand, his fall was in God's providence. I believe spiritually useful to many people in that church, myself included. It drove us back to passages like, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in you both to will and to do. And those sorts of instances force you down on your knees to say, if he could fall, Lord, what is in me? God, it has to be you. Finish the work you began. It's good that the Lord allows these things. That doesn't excuse the sin. But my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, when you hear, whether in this church or out in the broader world, the incredible wickedness that sometimes does exist within the visible church and comes to light, don't be offended. Christ warned us, seek reformation. Seek to form better elders and pastors, but don't be offended to turn away. And so we've seen this morning, there's so much to learn from Christ's desire for his disciples. By way of conclusion, I simply want to encourage you again, if you feel unworthy to serve, 
you are unworthy to serve. And the glory, the marvel of this passage of Mark is Christ does desire to use sinners. Everyone who comes to him, humbled, confessing, please, Lord, just use me of your grace, you'll find his yoke is easy. He'll share it with you. He is doing the hard work. He desires you. And as you look out on others, may we extend the same grace he extends to us. May we do the hard work of discipleship and not presume that because someone seems less gifted that he wouldn't use them. Let's go before him in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word as you picture to us, as you proclaim to us all the different ways that your love has been refracted through Christ. We pray for you to please make use of us in your time and way. We thank you that we who are unworthy have received an inheritance and that you will reward us graciously for what your spirit does through us. We thank you that you won't remember our sins, but you'll rejoice with us in glory. Please cause us to go forth with this mindset into the world. Help us to work diligently for our time is short to be of every good service to our neighbors, to our society. Help us, Lord, to bring your kingdom and to manifest it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.